As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open now your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That We may be filled with all of your fullness. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. We want to look at verses 10 through 22 together in connection with the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Um, so 1 Chronicles 29, that's between the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles on uh, page 452 of many of our pew Bibles. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 22. We want to just look at these verses together and see and hear in them uh, part of the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer that we have uh, presented to us here as well. So First Chronicles 29, beginning our reading at verse 10, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given to you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for for building you a house For your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Uh, Well, tonight we come to the end of the Lord's Prayer in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, We come to the end of the Heidelberg Catechism. We come to the end of the year. Uh, So this is a good way to conclude sort of everything all at once. 
Um, we've spent a number of weeks going through the catechism. Uh, the catechism was originally designed in 52 Lord's Days to go through one every Sunday through the whole course of the year. We've stretched it out, so it's been longer than just one year that we've gone through the catechism. Uh, but the purpose of the catechism, I think, is important to keep in mind, both when you begin the catechism and when you come to the end of it, um, that it was for the instruction of God's people that they might learn what it is that Christians need to know, be instructed in the basics of the faith, and that they be instructed in the basics of the faith for their comfort. Uh, that was the great design, the purpose of the catechism, that God's people might be comforted uh, to know the truth. Uh, so in one word, the catechism is all about comfort. It begins with a question on comfort, and as we end the Lord's Prayer, I think we see comfort offered to God's people. In one word, it's about comfort. If we wanted to expand the concept of comfort, we could say that it's designed to give God's people sure and solid comfort in the salvation of Jesus Christ that is ours by grace through faith. Um, and it's the kind of comfort because it rests in Christ, because it rests in what He's done, in what, it, what God has given to us in Christ. It's a hope and a comfort that endures. Uh, when Ursinus was writing, the, one of the principal authors of the Heidelberg Catechism was writing about the hope and the comfort of the Catechism. He said, this is a hope that survives our funerals. It's a hope that survives our funerals because it's a hope based in what God has done, what God has done in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's meant to be a comfort. It begins with a question of comfort. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Um, and it ends with comfort as well. We might ask, if Ursinus wrote such a great first question to the catechism, why doesn't he have a concluding question at the end? Uh, why no sort of concluding, closing thought? Um, and maybe because he thought that he couldn't do better than amen uh, to close the catechism and to close our concepts of how we think through these things together. Um, and so it's really no surprise in a catechism that's designed to comfort God's people by teaching them the truth about what Christ has done for us by his blood and by his cross, um, that this catechism ends with a very comforting thought uh, for God's people. The comforting thought with which the Lord's Prayer ends, with which David begins his prayer in the passage that we read, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Um, it's very likely that Jesus was not teaching them anything new to end their prayer this way that this would have been a very common way to end their prayer because of how David prays here um, in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 29. This is the prayer that's offered after he has collected offerings for the building of the temple. God had told David that he would not build the temple for him, but his son would build the temple. But David wanted to make as many provisions for building the temple as he could, and he voluntarily gave a lot of his wealth to be used in the building of the temple and encouraged the people to give. And the people came and gave a lot of what they had for the building of the temple. And this is the prayer where David really is celebrating the fact that so much has been freely offered. Nobody has been compelled to give. This is what they've wanted to give out of their hearts for the work of God's temple. And so David begins in this wonderful way in this prayer that in really a lot of ways uh, reflects that ending of the Lord's prayer. All of those elements are there. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty 
For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both honors and riches come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Um, All of those elements are there. Uh, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Um, It's a comforting thought that comes to God's people. It's particularly comforting as we think about how the Lord's Prayer has developed. We've been thinking about all of the different requests we make in the prayer. And the last request that we had just considered was that request that the Lord would deliver us from evil. Right? Deliver us, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And that reminded us of just how much danger we face in the world. Right? Just how much our temptations are, just how strong our enemies are, and how weak we are before them. That if it was not for God's sustaining grace, not for God's sustaining power, we would not be able to stand uh, in the grace that we have. Um, And so what, what more wonderful way to end the prayer than to be reminded of the surpassing greatness of our God. Our enemies might be strong, but he is stronger. His is the kingdom, and his is the power, and his is the glory forever. And um, so we think about this. We think about our God who is so strong and is, who is so glorious. And I think praying and ending our prayer this, this way does two things for us. It, it gives great confirmation to our faith. It helps to encourage our faith to remind us of who God is and who the God is that we pray to and put our trust in. Um, and it also gives us confidence that our prayers will be heard. Um, And so this confirms our faith and gives us confidence that our prayers will be heard and comforts our people uh, to remember who our God is. And so we want to think about the comfort we can derive from this conclusion. And I think we can't really do much better than to give consideration to each one of those words. Uh, To find comfort in his kingdom, to find comfort in his power, to find comfort in his glory, and to find comfort in our amen. And that's how I want to think about Uh, this together, this last petition of the Lord's Prayer. We find comfort in his kingdom. Uh, Question 128 asks, how do you conclude this prayer, the Lord's Prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of you because as our all-powerful king, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. How does it comfort us to be reminded that his is the kingdom, that the kingdom belongs to him? Uh, Well, first it draws our attention to the realm or the dominion over which God is king. Kings have kingdoms. Uh, Kings have realms or dominions over which they exercise their kingship. And being reminded that his is the kingdom reminds us of the dominion that is our God's. Uh, When we thought of thy kingdom come as a petition of the Lord's Prayer, we thought about how we can think about the kingdom of God, that from one aspect we can think of it as being universal, that God is king over everything, everything that's been made, everything that is, he is king over all. Um, But there's also a sense in which he is king over his people in a particular or special way, uh, that he is king over his church, his people that have existed from the beginning of the world to the end. 
When we think about that special kingdom, we recognize that it's a kingdom of grace in this world that God is building up by grace in His Son, and it's a kingdom of glory in the world to come when Christ returns again. Um, And so we're reminded of that realm. And when we think about the fact that God is king over all, that He has seated His Son on the throne, that Christ is now seated as king over all, it reminds us that everything is under His dominion. There's not anything in this world that is not under his control. Um, That includes our enemies are under his control, and it includes his people who are under his control. But it reminds us that there is nowhere that God does not exercise his dominion. Wherever Satan is, he's still under the dominion of the king. Wherever the world manifests its opposition to God, there still Christ is king. Uh, They are subject to his kingdom. They are bound to do his will. There is no realm or place in this world where Christ is not king. He meant it when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that should be a great comfort to the people of God, that there is no realm or dominion in this world that is not under the dominion of the Son of God. The kingdom is his, and he is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, But remembering that his is the kingdom also draws our attention not just to the dominion over which he's king, but to the king who's exercising dominion, to the one who is ruling. And we thought about that somewhat this morning as well, but we serve a king who is just and who is faithful. Um, Every true king had a duty to defend his subjects, uh, to listen to their cries for justice, to provide for them to do what they needed done, and that's the kind of king that we hope to have, a king who's just and faithful, who hears his people's cries for help, who defends them from injustice and from external attacks, who preserves their lives, and that's the kind of king we have. The Lord Jesus Christ is a just and faithful king. He hears his people when they call. He protects them. He delivers them. He preserves their lives. We have a just and faithful king who is not just a good king and everything a king should be, but is also a king who loves his people. It's possible to do your duty and not do it with love. Right? It's possible to be a good king in an earthly sense, a good ruler, a good authority, and not be doing it out of love for the people you serve. And that's one of the wonderful things as we think about the kingdom of God is not just that God is a faithful king and a just king. He's a king who loves his subjects, who loves the people for whom he exercises dominion. Um, I think that's what made David a great king, uh, that, I, that he loved his people and thought highly of God's people. I always think of what he says in Psalm 16, 3, when David said, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He was a good king because he thought of his subjects as excellent ones. And his delight was in them. That's who Jesus Christ is as our king. That's how he thinks of us. As the excellent ones of his kingdom in whom is all his delight. He delights to love and serve the people in his kingdom. Um, And it's a wonderful thing to understand that 
His kingdom extends in every dominion and is for all his people, ruled over by a just and faithful and loving king. There's comfort in his kingdom. There's also comfort in his power as our king. Um, Earthly monarchs, we often have cause to fear their power, right? Um, One of the unfortunate things about 2024 is it's an election year. Um, I was driving down the road and I saw a sign for a congressman and I thought, oh no, it's beginning already. Uh, don't they know it's not till next year? We're supposed to, the end of the year, we're supposed to have to deal with this? I mean, it's already beginning. Um, and that's one of the things that can concern us about politics, right? Are the right kinds of people going to be in power? Um, are they going to be the kind of people that will exercise their power for good? Because we know that there are plenty of earthly authorities who do not exercise power for good. We've just lately come through Christmas, and oftentimes that time of the year, we think about what Matthew said about King Herod, who sought to take Jesus' life. He was not a king that you wanted to be in power. Everyone lived in terror of King Herod. Um, Caesar Augustus apparently is credited with quipping about Herod because he didn't eat pork, that it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons because he killed a lot of his sons. Um, but wouldn't kill his pigs to eat. Um, He was a vicious, cruel person, and we recognize there can often be people in power who are vicious, cruel people. Uh, That's why there is that adage, right, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And certainly when it comes to human power, that's true, but when it comes to divine power, that could not be more false. God is the only one actually who has absolute power. And there is no corrupt thing in him. Um, He is a God that only ever exercises his power for the good. And because his is the power, that should be a great comfort to God's people. That someone who is so good is also so powerful. That our God is good for his people. And exercises that power for his good. Um, He does that even over his enemies. Right? Sometimes when we recognize that God's enemies are under his dominion and under his power, we wonder why they're allowed to do what they do. And it's always good for us to remember they're only allowed to do what they do according to his will and according to his plan. It does not mean that they are acting outside of his power somehow. Our God is able to completely restrain and repress all his enemies according to his will. He can subdue them, he can bend them to his will, he will conquer them, and he will ultimately destroy them. But they are only able to do what they do because the king is powerfully decreeing and allowing it so that even when they've done their worst, they are doing what he plans to do. And he plans to use it to subvert their evil and to turn it to the good of his people. Uh, That even when when they've done their worst... It's always according to his definite plan and foreknowledge uh, that these things happen, that he might turn them to the good of his people. Um, And his enemies are powerless in the face of his absolute power. Uh, John Chrysostom, a famous preacher, once said that if the kingdom is Christ, we have nothing to fear. There is none who can oppose it or wrest it from him or wrest from him the government of it. His is the power, and no one can take that power from him. 
He exercises that power against his enemies to even turn the evil that they do to the good of his people. And he exercises that power for his faithful people who love him. That's why his power ought to be a terror to the wicked, but ought to be a great comfort to those who love him. Because he uses that power to preserve and promote the good of his people. The Catechism rightly says, as our all-powerful king, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. Paul says in Romans 10, 11 through 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter, speaking from personal experience, says in 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God's absolute power is exercised out of his eternal infinite goodness for the punishment and diversion of the purposes of the wicked, but for the promotion and the blessing of the righteous. His power should be a great comfort to his people. We should be thankful that his is the kingdom and that his is the power and that his is the glory. There's great comfort in the glory of God for his people. What should be the greatest desire of the Christian heart? You ever thought about that question? No, we're just hearing it now. I don't know what to think about it now. Um, I'll try to help you. Um, What should be the greatest desire of the Christian's heart? Is it heaven? Is it eternal life? Is it an end to sin, an end to suffering, an end to death? Are those the things that we hope the most for? I think the Lord's Prayer helps us to remind us that the number one thing we should desire is that God would be glorified. That God would be glorified. That should be the great desire of the Christian heart. And notice how the Catechism helpfully relates our good to God's glory. You are both willing and able to give us all that is good, and because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. I'm not saying it's not good and right to hope for heaven and for eternal life and an end to sin and an end to suffering and an end to death. But Scripture teaches us to look for these things not for their own sake as just because they are good for us, but first and foremost because they will glorify our God. Right? We should desire heaven. We should desire heaven and, and the joys that await us there. But I should desire heaven because when I get there, it will show that God is true to his word and faithful to his promises. It will glorify him when I get to heaven. And I should desire that for, that for his sake, that he would receive the glory for that. When God's people who believe in him have eternal life and glory, it will show that Christ has broken the power of death. It will show that he has given us, as he promised, hope and a future. And he will receive the glory. And we will be able to say to him be the glory forever and ever for doing this for us. Suffering and death will be no more and sin will be no more because Christ has triumphed over them by his blood. Because Christ has returned in glory to make all things new. To him be the glory forever and ever. I was struck by this way of thinking. I was reading 
Herman Vitzius and his commentaries on the Lord's Prayer. And he said something that impressed that, this upon me. He said, in heaven we shall spend that endless eternity not so much in enjoying our blessedness as in celebrating God's praises and admiring his glory. Um, we won't spend eternity, that endless eternity, so much enjoying our blessedness as celebrating God's praises and admiring his glory. Um, that doesn't mean we won't spend that endless eternity enjoying blessedness. We will. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will. But it means that that's not the point. Right? We will enjoy it, but the primary joy of heaven will be to celebrate the glory of the God who's brought us to this that's brought the dust of the earth to this glory. Particularly those who were made in His image and plunged themselves into rebellion and that He came and scooped us out and delivered us from what we'd become. Delivered us from true and certain eternal death to raise us to that kind of life with fellowship with Him forever. That's the glory of heaven. Not so much the blessedness that we will enjoy, but what it says about the God who's provided it to us. It's the glory that we celebrate the most in heaven. Heaven won't primarily be about us. It'll primarily be about Christ and what our God has done in Him. Heaven is about God's glory first and foremost. Right? Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And one of the, the beautiful things about what God has done is to tie His glory to our good. Right? We don't want to think of His glory being exclusive from our good. They're, they're intimately connected. He has connected them. He has connected His glory to our good so that we will experience that enjoyment of heaven and what He's promised and will glorify God through the blessedness that we receive, that will be some of the goodness that from a whole heart in perfect measure forever we will celebrate the glory of our God. He has made it so that our, our good and His glory have become inseparable. And they've become inseparable by the gospel of His Son. As one of my former professors said, the gospel, by the gospel, man's greatest good coincides with God's greatest glory. When the church is glorified in heaven and when we are freed from sin and freed from suffering and freed from death, that will be the greatest glory of what God has done. Our greatest good will be His greatest glory. He's made that happen through His Son. Those two things will blend together in heaven in perfect harmony. It's a wonderful thing to think about. That what God is doing for His people is first for His glory, but it's also for our good. And we want to continue to glorify Him. And we glorify Him in our prayers.
He is glorified when we ask things from him because we are acknowledging that he is the all-powerful fountain of good. He is glorified when he hears our prayers, when the God of heaven does what he's promised and hears the cries of his people when they call to him. He's glorified when he answers our prayers and demonstrates the truth that he is a good God who never lets our prayers return to us void. He often grants us the desires of our hearts when we pray. And if he denies us the things that we desire, it's only because he has our good at heart and will give us the grace to endure the disappointment. But he promises that all of our prayers will be yes and amen when Christ returns in glory. All the prayers that we've offered for justice, for the unborn, for the persecuted church, for the poor, for the distressed, Christ will answer those prayers. They will be yes and amen in him at his coming. All the prayers for healing and deliverances from death his people have prayed for, they will be yes and amen when the Lord returns. All the prayers for the church to be built and for believers to be gathered in will be yes and amen when the Lord returns in glory. Christ is the yes and amen to the prayers of his people, and that's why there's such great comfort in the amen we offer as we conclude our prayers. That's what makes amen such a comforting word. Question 129 asks, what does that little word amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be, for it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. Amen simply means truly. This will truly and surely be. Whenever Jesus in the world said, truly, truly, I say to you, that was amen, amen, I say to you. Um, Truly, these things will happen. And when we say amen to the promises of God, when we say amen to those realities, we're doing two things. We're making a strong assertion about the things that we pray. Whenever I come to the last question of the catechism, I'm always reminded that when I get to amen in my prayer, it should be amen, right? It shouldn't just be the last little word. It's, it's a strong assertion that we are making. The things that God promised will truly be. He will surely give what he's promised to give. Um, it's that assurance we hear in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked from him. Right? We know. We believe. It's a strong assertion when we say amen. We're not just making a strong assertion when we say that. We're expressing our heartfelt desire. That we we really desire the things that we've prayed for. We're just not just sure that they'll be, but it's really what we want. These are the things that we desire. It expresses our passion to receive the things of our God. Uh, Martin Luther once wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon, I pray for you, I have prayed, and I will pray, and I have no doubt I shall be heard, for I feel the amen in my heart. I feel the amen in my heart, the desire to have these things that I prayed for. And it's a wonderful way of thinking about that we should be saying amen, not just with our mouths, but with our hearts. 
These are the things that we desire from God. And we are expressing that desire, declaring our trust in his promises, declaring and desiring that his promises be realized in our lives. Um, But the catechism helpfully reminds us at the end that there's something more sure in that word, amen. Something more sure than our mouths, more sure than our hearts. And in a sense, it's the sureness of God's ears. That God hears when his people call. Um, The amen reminds us of that. And I love how the catechism says, it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. Um, Every evening we use as our votum or our declaration of dependence, those words of Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. It's a wonderful reminder. But the next words of that psalm are glorious. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Uh, God is near to those who call and he hears and he acts. That's the hope in which God's people live. Um, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 65, 24, the Lord says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. This gives us tremendous certainty when we pray, that God hears us even before we pray, Um, that he's answering already while we're still in process, and the God who's listening should, should be the one who really is our encouragement and our comfort when we pray, because are our hearts and minds always where they should be when we're praying? As a test of that, you can think of where your hearts and minds are when the pastor's praying the long prayer. Um, I know I used to sit where you're sitting. It's hard to pay attention to that whole long prayer. Um, We don't always have in our hearts and in our minds where they should be when we pray. But what is our comfort? We have a God who's a better listener than we are a praying people. Do we always desire the things that we pray for the way we should? Are you like me? Do you sometimes find yourself not really, you know, sort of halfway through a prayer and not really sure what exactly you're praying for? I tend to call that praying myself into a cul-de-sac. I've sort of gotten in there and now I don't know where to go from here. Um, we, We wrestle with God in our prayers. We sometimes don't even know what to ask for the way we should. We can be so perplexed or troubled in life, but God always knows what to hear. God always knows what to do. Um, It's a tremendous comfort to us of the God who's listening to our prayers. And that we have a mediator in our Lord Jesus Christ who takes the things that we pray in our weakness and brings them to our Father in his power, who intercedes for us and who is our go-between between us and our God. It's a call for us not to underestimate the importance of that little word, amen. Um, It's a wonderful reminder to God's people, a statement of our faith in God's truth and an appeal to God to make that truth a reality. It's the proper response when we contemplate who God is. Um, It's the response that comes to us at the end of the scriptures, 
In Revelation 22, 20, we read, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And how do God's people respond? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, and so I don't think there's a better way that we could end the catechism or end our series through the Lord's Prayer or end our year together, um, but with that little word. Amen to all God's promises in Jesus Christ. And so all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are to be reminded of who you are, that Jesus taught us a prayer not only that teaches us what we need to pray for, but who we are praying to, that yours is the kingdom, that yours is the power, and that yours is the glory, and that forever. How, Lord, we look forward to the glory of heaven and the privilege of, of glorifying your name for that endless eternity. And we thank you for being the God who has done it. And so when we hear your promises that are given to us in Christ and your word, all we can say is amen. Uh, make them a reality for us, we pray. Watch over us and keep us. And hear us as we close our time together praying that prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.